Hope you're all well. It's good to be able to see you from this lovely uh, platform and get a good look at everyone's face. Um, we're going to be continuing, as we've seen, Surprised by God series. It's wonderful to be able to look at God and understand who he is. We'll be in uh, Genesis 16, so if you want to turn there, that will be um, the place where we'll mostly be looking. This morning we're looking at God being the God who sees. The God who sees. I wonder what you think of if I were to ask you to picture God. What would you do if I asked you, picture God, what would you picture? There would be probably some of you who would go with the classic uh, bearded man on a throne or something like that. But our perception of God comes from somewhere. It comes from somewhere. And it's usually a projection of something. So when we think of God, we think of a hundred different things. And people fight over those things. Have you noticed how warlike cultures think that God is a warrior? Have you noticed how philosophers think that God is a mind? Have you noticed how pacifists think God is a pacifist and hippies think God is a hippie? Modern Westerners often think God is just a way to a euphoric experience. What does that tell you about what we're going after? Sigmund Freud, the 19th century psychologist, said that all God talk is just projection. That anyone saying God is just saying man in a loud voice. Naturally speaking, he was right. When you do bottom-up theology, when you take your highest human experience and just try to multiply that by a thousand and say, that's what God must be like, you're making a God in your own image. And this series is about us finding out who is he saying that he is. We're not just going to project our own image. If our understanding and our perception of God is a projection, then it is wanting. It is inadequate. It's incorrect. And that really matters. Why does that matter? Well, if our perception of God is incorrect and the truth about him is glorious, then our not knowing him properly means he doesn't get the glory that he's due. Think about it. I was reading about Blaise Pascal this week. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, a geometrist, a mathematician, incredible guy from a few centuries ago. I didn't know much about him, and as I was reading about him, I was amazed. Let me tell you a few facts. At the age of 14, Pascal was invited to join a weekly gathering of leading geometricians from Paris. By the age of 16, he had written a groundbreaking book on geometry that some critics rejected, believing it to be far too complicated to have been conceived by someone of his young age. At the age of 19, he invented the first calculator in an effort to assist his father with complex maths. He made some 50 such machines, which became distant cousins of the modern-day computer. At the age of 31, he invented probability theory in response to a question from a friend posed to him about gambling. He also clarified theories on pressure and vacuum, studied hydraulic fluids, created the first hydraulic press, invented the syringe, and he created the first public transportation system, which was a bus line for the poor residents of Paris. His scientific legacy is profound. This is, I learned this over an afternoon just reading about him, and the, the result was, I didn't know much about this man. As I read and as I understood who he was... He received from me the admiration and the respect and the recognition that was due to him. 
When we understand, when we, when we learn and we understand more about someone, we, we, we give them the recognition they're due, the glory that they're due. And Blaise Pascal was just a man. The Bible says in Romans 11, from God, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Glory belongs to God. He must be admired. He must be worshipped, trusted, and adored. And he will be more rightly as we understand him for who he truly is. If that doesn't matter to you, and it really should, then consider this. The truth about him is not just glorious objectively. It's not just glorious regardless of us. God's glory is a glory that is for us. He's glorious for us. He's glorious towards us. He is gloriously good. He's gloriously kind, loving, majestic, and life-giving towards us. The Bible says in Psalm 16:2 that apart from him there is no good thing. So another reason it's crucial that we perceive him and understand him properly is because when we misconceive who God is, when we misunderstand who God is, we miss out. We forsake goodness. We forsake love. We reject life and light. We lose joy. We surrender peace. Guessing about God is foolish. Filling in the gaps with projections of our parents or our leaders will leave us woefully short of truly knowing God and all of the benefits he gives us. God wants to be known. He wants to be really known for his glory and for our good. That's what this series is all about. He's revealed himself. And so we're going to the source to say, God, who are you? Show us who you are. He's revealed himself in two main ways. Through the Bible, God is perceived accurately. He's made himself understandable by the story of creation, the history of the pursuit and redemption of his people, his actions, his requirements, his grace to his people, his faithfulness again and again is in this book. His sovereignty over all, we learn as we come to him. God's word reveals what he's like. But there's a second way we're told that God has revealed himself, and that is in the word made flesh. God has been pleased to reveal himself through coming to walk among us as Emmanuel, as Jesus, the Father's treasured son, is God with us. Jesus said that once we've seen him, we've seen the Father. The Bible says that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. The Son is the image of the invisible God. So when I ask you to picture God, you may have found it difficult. He's invisible. I I can't image him. He is invisible. The point of this series is to discover what we should think of when we think of God. Not simply for knowledge, but for relationship. Every week in this series, we're looking at God's revelation of himself. In his word and in the word made flesh, the very image of God, Jesus Christ. More important than simply knowing what you should think is actually meeting God. And we pray that you will meet him, that many of you for the first time. Some of you, there'll be revelations that will take you deeper into relationship. Some of you, it will be the first time. But we're praying that God meets with people. 
Last week, Tom spoke to us from the Exodus story where God interrupts Moses' life. Remember at the burning bush, God interrupted his life. He went over and found this bush that was burning but not consumed. And, and God commanded him. What did he command him? Take off your shoes for the place you're standing is holy ground. And last week we heard God is holy. He's set apart. He's unlike us in every way. He is different. He is other. He's above. And he is perfect in all of his ways. Psalm 145, it says this, The Lord is righteous in all of his ways and holy in all his works. No other attribute is used more to describe God than his holiness throughout Scripture. He's unlike anything else, and yet he's made himself knowable. And in that encounter last week that Moses had with God at the burning bush, we also hear God's compassionate heart that says he's come to rescue his people as he has seen their misery. His eyes are on them. He's a God who's focused on his people. He's the God who sees. We hear this compassionate heart. He's attentive. His focus is on them. Today we are looking at El Roi, the God who sees. God sees all. He, God sees sufferers. God sees sinners. And God sees Jesus. That's what we're looking at today. The God who sees all. The God who sees sufferers. The God who sees sinners. And the God who sees Jesus. Firstly, the God who sees all. To say that God sees all is to say that God knows all. He knows every detail of what was, what is, and what will be. Nothing is a mystery to him. Nothing is concealed from him. Psalm 139 says, even darkness is as light to him. There's nothing that's hidden and concealed from God. He sees all. He knows all. Before God, all of existence is exposed for what it truly is. Job 37.16 says, God is perfect in knowledge. God knows because he sees all. He sees the macro. He sees the micro. He knows the stars and the planets that he put into place. He knows the orbits. He knows how it works. And he knows intimately every thought that has passed through your head. He sees what we can't. He comprehends what we never would be able to. What we cannot even begin to comprehend, God comprehends. And therefore, he's more trustworthy than our blind, compromised, cloudy view and understanding. His ways are higher. He knows. He understands. So we put our trust in this one who sees far more than we do. Everything that blends together to create the mega symphony of matter and sound and beauty and energy and beings that we call existence, God sees it all. He's over and above it all. And of course, being the God who sees becomes really personal for us because He sees you. He sees you at your best, He sees you at your most triumphant. He sees you at your worst. He sees you at your most lonely. He sees you at your most broken. God is a God who sees all. And we're going to look now at this passage in, in Genesis 16. We're looking at God, the God who sees sufferers. 
the God who sees sufferers. To be seen is part of being loved. Because to be seen is to be known, and we can't truly be loved if we're not known. God sees us, knows us. It's part of being loved. And most of you will know the painful experience of being overlooked. Maybe kids at school or college or uni overlooked you. And you know, yeah, that's been my story, really. Maybe, maybe even parents neglected you, and you know, yeah, that's just the deal. I just had to get on with it. That's just how it was. Perhaps teachers didn't really consider you, or friends forgot you. Maybe some of you have bosses or colleagues who disregard you and don't listen to your opinion, or even spouses who don't take you seriously. It's even painful sometimes when strangers can be so inconsiderate. To be overlooked and unseen is difficult, it's painful. And we're going to get a good picture of this when we look at this story in Genesis 16. We'll read the whole chapter here together. It'll be on the screen as well. It says this, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went to Hagar, into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servants to your embrace, and when she saw that she conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt with harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that you cannot be numbered. They cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called his name, uh, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. It's a pretty shameful story. It's not one to be proud of. The Bible doesn't edit those out. It's honest about mankind's mess. It's honest about our frailty and our silliness, and it celebrates God's holiness by comparison. Man can be messy. God is different. God 
is holy. And God, as we're learning more and more, as we see him reveal himself, we see here is a God of compassion. A God who sees, a God who is attentive, a God who listens and hears, a God who knows her name, interrupts her life and says, Hey God, where are you going? You may remember how the story of God's promises begins with Abraham. Abraham receives this promise from God. You will be the father of many nations. And yet Abraham and Sarai have not had any children. They're getting older and older. This would have to be a miracle. But God's good at miracles. This would have to be creating something out of nothing almost, right? Well, God's okay with that. He can do that. The thing is, after a while, Abram and his wife Sarai are getting impatient. They'd held on to this promise for years, but no children had been born. They were disillusioned. They were desperate. And Abram was almost 100 years old. I mean, come on. We really need to act here. So Sarai makes a suggestion that they take matters into their own hands and Abram should sleep with the Egyptian servant girl, Hagar. Now, I want you to think about Hagar. It's the first time we've heard of her in the Bible. This is the first time she's mentioned. She's a servant girl. She's not a member of the family. She's Sarai's maidservant. She was an Egyptian, not a Hebrew. She's not a member of the family. She's just a servant of the family. Now, she wasn't asked, was she? She wasn't asked. She was just told, this is going to happen her opinion, her desires, they weren't considered. This is massive. This isn't what we're going to have for dinner tonight. This is, you're going to bear a child for us. She may have felt terrified. She may have felt honoured. We don't know, but she wasn't treated honourably. This was at best an insensitive assumption. At worst, it was an abuse of power. Yet, we don't hear any complaint from Hagar. It may be that you've had experiences where you've been treated in such a way that was painful or hurtful, but you knew, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to leave it. I just accept it. I'm supposed to keep quiet and I'm supposed to have a good attitude. I'm on my own in this situation, so who could I even call out to to help anyway? You ever had that kind of experience? I mean, she's completely on her own. She's got no ability to question this, to challenge this. Maybe you've even received lies about yourself and you've been treated in such a way that you've thought, well, if I'm being treated like scum, maybe I am scum. If I'm being treated like I'm useless, maybe I am useless. Maybe I really am worthless. Maybe I'm pathetic. I'm a joke, so why would anyone treat me differently? Perhaps that's been something that has been a reality to you. And these things can be really subtle. Sometimes we just don't want to cause a stir, so we just get on with it. We, we feel unseen, we feel overlooked, but then we can kind of think, well, this is my lot, this is just how it goes. Hagar was just a servant girl. She would just need to get on with it. And what makes it even worse was that this was done in the name of God. This was done by a godly father figure. And mother figure. Maybe you've had the very people who you know, they should have listened to me. If anyone should have cared about me, they should have cared about me. 
maybe you just know, if anyone should have considered me and my thoughts, it should have been them. And they just dismissed you. Or even worse, perhaps. Well, Hagar doesn't deal with the pregnancy very diplomatically, does she? She, she has contempt for her mistress. I, I can bear a child, you can't. And she deeply offends Sarai. So Abram reminds her that Hagar is a servant. And he, she can deal with her servant as she wants. So Sarai is harsh with the girl to the point where she flees. And here again, she is alone, vulnerable, spurned, and pregnant, fleeing on her own. And it is at that point where God interrupts her life. God meets with her. God is beautiful the way he treats her. He tells her what's going on. He's listened to her affliction. He's going to bless her. He's going to bless her son to the point where she sees, you're the God who sees. Someone sees. Someone sees me. And it's not just someone. It's the God of heaven and earth who sees her. He has his eye upon her, his attention upon her. He interrupted her life. Has that happened to you? Have you known God interrupt your life? This week at Life Group, we were getting to know each other a little bit, and we were chatting about the question of when have you felt, I can't remember what the question we used, but it was something like, when, when has uh, you felt the most uh, inter- interaction with God? When has there been the biggest moment with God in your life? And we heard from different people. And it just, I didn't share on the night, but it occurred to me straight away. Is a few years ago when I was in Cape Town. <clears throat> and um, I was at a very low point in my life. I was very down and depressed. I felt overlooked. I felt no one really sees. And uh, I don't want to be overdramatic about this, but I'm the youngest in my family. Uh, five children. This isn't a big deal at all, but it does... It does develop a thought process. When you're youngest, your family don't say, what should we do today to you? I I think there are things in my past that I just realized, I just kind of lump it. I don't really expect to have an opinion. I don't really expect to be listened to, but I felt at this time very low, and I just thought, well, this is just how it is. And I was in in, in in a meeting, and God just looked at me. I see you. You know that? Have you had that? This isn't just her story. They named the place where this happened the place where um, the well of the God who sees. It's, it's the point there being this isn't just a one-off. This is what God is like. Have you ever had that where God's interrupted your life? No one sees me. No one cares. And God nails you. I see I see what you're going through. I've seen this pain. I've seen things that you've said about yourself that are not true. Suddenly, out of nowhere, Hagar knew she was seen. She was acknowledged. Imagine the relief. That sense of sanity. You ever had that where you think, maybe I'm just going mad here? I'm just, maybe it's just me. And then suddenly God says, no, it's not you. I see you. I see what's happened to you. I know that this isn't right, and I'm for you. Because she doesn't just say, 
that he, she's, he's the God who sees. She says, he's seen me, him who looks after me. It's not, I just, it's not just I see you from afar, get on with it. No, I see you and I look after you. The joy and the strength returning to her. A moment ago, she didn't know where to turn to or what would become of her. And now she had seen the God of heaven looked at her, was affected by her plight, acknowledged her, rescued her, cared for her, looked after her. This is what God is like. The God of the Bible is like this. Do you know that? Have you received that personal love? Understood that God is a God who sees you? Do you know that he looks on you with compassion? His attitude towards you is not that you would just get on with life, just stoically move forwards. His heart is that you would know his personal attention, his favor. He has come to bind up the brokenhearted. God sees sufferers. And if you've been suffering in any way, small, you might think, oh, it's not a big deal at all. He sees. He cares. If it's been huge, it's not too big for him. He sees. He cares. He wants to take after, look after you. The truth that God is a God who sees all is a comfort to many of us. To many of us, we may find it's quite discouraging <laughs> because he's also the God who sees sinners. We understand that if God sees all, then he sees us. Every part of us is known by him. There's no thought, motive, word, or action that is not laid bare before this God. Psalm 139 again, one of my favorite psalms in the Bible, beautiful. He says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Now that's beautiful, but in light of God's holiness and our falling short of the divine standard, God's unfiltered knowledge of us can be unsettling. And it should be sobering to us. He knows your jealous thoughts. He knows your gossip, your lust, your grumbling. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Sobering truth. If he sees all, that's wonderful. I'm not unseen, but it's also terrifying that I'm not unseen. We will one day give an account to the one who sees all. There'll be no hiding. There'll be no cheating. There'll be no brushing things under the carpet. Last weekend, I don't know uh, if, if you were here on the Friday, but uh, Matt in this building sees all. He has CCTV cameras all over the place. And... Uh, he, he, he said he was looking back on some of the CCTV footage because he wanted to see his children who were at the sound desk with him. It was a ni nice moment, and he wanted to look at it again with his wife. And, um, and he saw another little boy get behind the sound desk, another little boy with blonde hair, whose surname was Virgo, <laughs> and uh, see some Haribos and uh, take one and pinch it and eat it and sneak out again. So... Matt sees all in this building. <laughs> and God sees all. There'll be no hiding, there's no cheating. And I said to my son, what happened there? He said, it was just one. 
And Matt, Matt said, like father, like son. So <laughs> fair enough. Can't argue with that. But Hebrews 13 is sobering. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. Why, what do we do with Hebrews 13? We keep reading. Keep reading, because it says this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then it goes on to say, Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is where we come to our final point, the God who sees Jesus, the God who sees his son. Throughout the book of Hebrews, we see Jesus identified as our high priest. The role of the high priest is to represent God's people to God and to make atonement for their sins by offering gifts and sacrifices and to intercede on their behalf. Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus being our great high priest transforms our experience of being under God's gaze from being the terrifying look of a judge to the tender gaze of a father. God sent his son, Jesus, to become fully human whilst remaining fully divine. He walked for 33 years in our world and remained without sin. Jesus is both fully God and fully man. The first qualifies him to be our redeemer. The second qualifies him to be our representative. Think of all the temptations you go through. Think of the times you've given in to those temptations. Jesus is not aloof or unaware of the difficulty of this life. He has been tempted in every way, experienced it all even more than you understand, and yet was without sin. He's not unsympathetic. How... how Comforting is that, that Jesus, the Son of God, was prone to temptation, but never once gave in. The all-holy, all-seeing God of glory sympathizes with your struggles. Sympathizes when you get tempted. But unlike us, Jesus passed in every way. He obeyed the Father at every turn. The good news for us is that on the cross, Jesus not only took our sin and its punishment onto himself, but he placed his own righteousness upon us. I'm sure you failed this week. The good news is that Jesus is your perfect and holy representative. The Father is pleased to look upon him. When God looks upon his struggling saints, he sees us on the basis of Christ's perfect work for us. Not our imperfect week, we try to live for him, the perfection God demands has been won for us by Christ. He supplies it. And if God the just is satisfied to look on Jesus and pardon you, who are you to argue with that? Who are you to say, oh, I don't know, I don't know if it counts for me. God the just is pleased to look on his son and pardon you. So when Satan tempts you, and sorry, and Satan whispers to you, God saw that sin. The CCTV camera is on you. You've been seen. You can say back, yes. And he punished that sin on the cross on Jesus. 
I'm putting my hope in Jesus' performance, not on mine. We have an answer. God has chosen to look on Jesus. That's grace. He's chosen to look on his son. And finally, what does this mean for our everyday life together? If Jesus is our perfect righteousness, if God is pleased to look on him, if God sees all, God sees sufferers, God sees sinners, and God sees Jesus, his righteousness on us, we can live a completely honest life. We don't have to hide. We don't have to have a facade. We don't have to pretend. We can live an honest life together, confessing our sins together, moving forward together, knowing the forgiveness and grace of God. There's nothing to hide from God who sees all. Don't run from him, but turn to him. This is why friendships in the church can be marked by vulnerability, by grace, by truth, because of Jesus. He's covered us. There's no shame. There's no sin. There's no hiding. But rather, we can know the grace of God. I want to finish with this, one of my favorite quotes by an author called Tim Keller. He says this, To be loved but not known is comforting, but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. This is the God who sees, loves, protects, looks after, is compassionate. Let's just pray. If the band want to come. Father, we thank you that, as we sang before, you see the depths of our heart and you love us the same. This is awesome, wonderful truth, Lord. You're the God who sees all. That should cause us to be terrified. And yet you're the God who's provided a cover so that you would look upon your son's righteousness instead of our sin. Thank you you've dealt with it. Thank you it's done forever. Father, I want to pray for those who need to know this morning that you have seen them in their suffering. You see them. I pray you'd interrupt people's lives to say, hey, you're not getting away. Your problems are not too small for me. My eye is on you. Father, I really ask you to be the protective father that you are to many in this place. Bring them right through to a place of freedom from shame, freedom from pain, healing. And Lord, those of us that know I'm guilty before this holy God, help us to know what it is to run to Jesus who is our salvation. Thank you that you are the God who sees all and the comfort that gives to us. Amen.